yada 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 these true crime show tunes are brought to you by Lindsay park <laughs> and core seltzer water <laughs> llc and true and uh core seltzer water hi hey how's it going oh it's happy saturday i actually have a free saturday for them, it's Mannequin Monday, so... That's true. Well, happy Mannequin Monday. I, you'll hear this in two days. So, on Monday, just know that Courtney and Lindsay had a great weekend. I'm sure we're going to have a great <laughs> Easter tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Happy Easter, everybody, and uh, happy Passover to all our Jewish friends. Yeah, we have an Easter brunch tomorrow, and then... What Jesus would have wanted? Yes. We have... An Easter brunch tomorrow with some of our friends. And then tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be burping now that I realize I'm having a seltzer and I'm just filling up with bubbles. <laughs> and I'm probably just going to burp this whole time. You're having a seltzer attack. Yeah, I'm just we all bloating do. out with seltzer, hard seltzer, but it's fine. Um, and then... <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, I just released a burp off mic. <laughs> just trying to be real discreet about and it. And then tomorrow night, I'm cooking a roast. An Easter roast. I'm going to say something that's going to come off mean. I feel like you need some hobbies. I don't. I, okay, look. <laughs> work was my hobby, and now I'm not working, so I'm working on it. I cleaned my house today, which needed to happen. I, ha- I do want a hobby. But right now my hobby is looking for jobs. That's my hobby. <laughs> that's that's a, a good hobby. <laughs> yes, I'm looking for jobs. And I don't know, maybe what should my hobbies be? What should I hobby? You could get into biking. About that, I want to get into biking. I'm waiting for my husband to fix up his bike so I can bike. Okay. I'm also waiting for someone to get a bike with me because I don't want to bike alone. I want to yeah. be so. I'm going to be a social biker. Okay. I mean, we live in a part of the state that is extremely bike friendly. I feel like you could find a Facebook group or. See, I'm not that desperate though. Like, <laughs> you're very particular about who you want to bike with. Is yes. what it sounds like. I don't want to be. I don't want to bike with someone who's like a pretentious biker. Yeah, I get that. And I feel like a lot of people that live here are pretentious bikers. Like, I'm just trying to go around my neighborhood a couple times and be, like, good. Like, I'm not trying to go, like... Yeah, I get that. I'm not trying to go from, like, our town to, like, two towns over on a bike path. (laughs) Yeah. Some people who, like, will brag about, like, riding 50 miles. I'm like... My husband. That's not a brag to me. I'm sorry. My husband, when he was biking regularly. To me, that screams... I do not have anything better to do. But yet you want biking to be my hobby. But you could bike like... But I mean, I guess if I was biking, it's because I literally have nothing else better to do, so... That was the vibe. That was the vibe I was getting at. <laughs> so... You could also paint. Look, I know that you're really into hobbies because you just painted your whole house, but like some of us are just trying to take it s- slow. You could paint canvases. You could get into photography. I would love to do that. I actually really like to paint. Yay! Then do that. I'll help you. I do. See, I like to have hobbies, but I also like to be social while I do my hobbies. Okay. Because I get bored if I'm just, like, painting by myself. Okay. Listeners, 
send in hobby ideas for Courtney. Oh, I did have a hobby idea though, um, which I've seen a lot of other people doing it. So I'm not trying to copy anyone's hobby, but it looks like something I would be really into is like making earrings. Yeah. Like the clay earrings. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Please make them for me. I looked up kits on Amazon. Do it. I might. I will wear them. I'm kind of busy. I'm kind of busy right now. I'm preoccupied (laughs) with the drama of my life, but once I'm in a good spot, I will, I will make earrings. I will wear them proudly. (laughs) I don't care if they look like a deflated snake. I will wear them. This is kind of a hobby. What we do here. Yes. This is my hobby. Thank you. Yeah. I think I actually posted that and said, this is my hobby. (laughs) This is my hobby. Um, I do like to read. Mm. And that sounds nerdy, but I feel like reading is a hobby. That's definitely not had, nerdy. Who bullied had... you? Who bullied you into believing reading was nerdy? <laughs> I wasn't homeschooled. That's why I think reading is nerdy. So someone I... did bully you in public school no is what one, you're saying. No one bullied me about reading, but it's like I liked to read so much more than everyone else. And I feel like a lot of people were like, I don't get it. What were your AR points? Oh, they were pretty high. Like I got like personal <laughs> pan pizzas for reading like... From reading, like, enough books. I don't know if they did that for you. No, I just... Do you think the reason why, as adults, we don't read as much is because we don't have to read to buy a personal pan pizza? We just order it? And also, I feel like some people just don't like reading. I feel like people like the idea of reading. Yeah. But then when it actually comes to reading, they don't want to. Would it be better if I gave you a personal pan pizza? Yes. (laughs) I feel like personal pan pizzas can solve everything, honestly. Even if I'm in a good mood, I still want a personal pan pizza. And you don't even have to read for it. I would, though, if I had to. (laughs) I've done it before. I'll do it again. (laughs) You do it all over again. No regrets. (laughs) Okay. Now that we've ranted and rambled, how has your week been? Give Give me the details of your week and what you've been up to. Okay, like you said earlier, I painted my house, and every time I go out... The outside. The outside, yeah. I painted the outside of my brick, and every time I've gone out to do it, I've asked myself, why am I doing this? And then I do it anyway. So the other thing that happened this week is I I had my hammock come in. So I've been wanting a hammock for like a while. Big fan. Big fan of the hammock. It finally came in, and actually on Wednesday, you were there. We spent like five hours in the hammock. We just laid in it together while our husbands mindlessly hit golf balls. Yeah, it was not like, it was just an afternoon thing. We were all in the backyard, and like, it's a two-person hammock, and so I had just gotten it like that day. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we tested it out, but the problem is when it's a two-person hammock and you guys, you, you get in the hammock, getting out is a feat, and so you just convince yourself it's not worth it. Like, the reward system in your brain calculates the cost of getting out of the hammock, and you decide it's better to stay in the hammock. So we were just there for five hours. Yeah. It was, it was, I love a good hammock. I would, I might even come over, like, you'll walk in your backyard, and I'll just be in your hammock one day. That's okay. I literally was in it for two hours today when I got done painting. All I could think about when I was, like, painting was, I'm going to go get in the hammock. And I got in the hammock with some snacks, and it was great. That sounds really fun. What else did you get this week? I got a giant fire pit. I love it. It's a gas fire pit. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Really excited for patio nights once it gets a little warmer. 
It's V nice. Very nice. The backyard finally looks great. So yeah, all the boring adult stuff, you know, it's like what I told you like the other day, I was like, is it the simple things in life? It is (laughs) a nice patio. Weird to think when we first started this podcast, there was like almost a foot of snow outside and now we're like, we like to go outside in the hammock Yeah, and being outside and painting Lindsay's house. I was deep in the throes of seasonal depression whenever we started recording. I was basically like reading about murders and I was like, life is meaningless. I get it. There's a foot of snow outside. Uh, <laughs> like, I do uh, miss the snow. I like, like not that I want it to snow today or anything, but it was fun while it lasted. Dear God, please don't snow. It's, we probably have a good number of months before that even possible could be a possibility. You know, what would have made my seasonal depression probably better. What? A personal pan pizza. <laughs> It solves everything. It solves it all. But no, I have to share my pizzas is with my ever, lactose intolerant husband. Is it ever a bad time for personal pan pizza, though? No, it's not. It's not. It's I. Not. We may have to order pizza after this, but it's fine. Have you ever had, like, have you ever been to Chicago? No. <laughs> that was a genuine question. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been to the Chicago airport to get on a connecting flight, but I've ne- actually never been in this city, like, okay. strolling around Chicago. Okay. I've only been once, and it was only for a couple days, but I did get to eat, like, OG. I got, like, a personal pan pizza in Chicago, like, OG Chicago pizza. Was it amazing? Yeah, it was really good, but when I got it, I looked down, and I was like, my soup is in a bread bowl. That's exactly what it it looked like. Ooh, so in your opinion, what's better, Chicago style or New York style? Oh, no. I'm not trying to start this fight. It's not. It's just an opinion. It's an opinion. Okay. Oh, I'm going to say Chicago. Really? Yeah, it was very good. The crust was undeniably amazing. Mm, it was that. soupy, which is, is not traditionally my fave, but all the flavors were very... It just felt really good. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It was just a good time. It was a good time. Chicago, I miss you. I like New York style pizza. <laughs> I like New York style pizza, but they're so thin. I feel like yeah. I could eat an entire New York City or New York style pizza like by myself. Yeah, I and also like I know a lot of places around Northwest Arkansas that make very similar New York style pizza. And it's just, uh, but Chicago, like trying to, I have never had a pizza like I have in Chicago. I've, it's never been replicated. Have you ever been to Damn Good? In Little Rock? Yeah. I've heard a lot about it. I haven't been. Oh my God. I know. So I've heard good. a lot. You know, I will say I've had New York style pizza. No shade. Love it. It was a, it was a good time. It was unlike any other pizza I've ever had, but Damn Good Pies, winner. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. It's really thick. Um, but they put the sauce on top. It's weird. Mm-hmm. It's like the, it's like cheese fillings, like proteins, veggies, whatever mm-hmm. you want. And then sauce on top. It's really saucy. That's kind of Chicago style. It's so good. Yeah. It's the really sauciness. That's so very, good. that's very Chicago style. Yeah. It's very good. If I ever go to Chicago and have their pizza, I will do a review. Yeah. On what is my favorite. We should... We should go to Chicago. I think Fayetteville has a damn good pies. Not, <gasps> I think they do. Oh. We're just so, giving a free sponsorship to damn good pies. If you want to sponsor us, reach out. Are you ready for my story? I am very ready. Okay. 
So my story starts, it's actually a very recent case, which is really fun. I discovered it about a month ago. Um, it happened in November 2020. Oh my God. So very recent. It's still an ongoing investigation. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm going to be talking about the mysterious death of Alexis Sharkey. <gasps> wait, 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 wait. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is, yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Alexis Lee Robinault was born January 25th, 1994. She is from Northwestern Pennsylvania. Um, she comes from a very close and loving family, um, and they describe her as smart, kind, generous, very analytical, and a motivated and committed soul. And her friends also say the same thing. She sounds like really just a great person. Um, in high school, she played sports, had a lot of friends, and was in the honor society. She graduated in 2012 and went to college at the University of Pittsburgh, where she majored in nutrition, biology, and psychology. And she graduated in 2016. So a lot of that's a lot of stuff to major in. That's I feel like. a lot. Um, she wanted to go to med school. Like her dream was to go to med school, but an even bigger dream she had was to travel. She was really, really pas- passionate about traveling. So she wanted to take some time off from school because she just was working so hard getting her undergrad that she decided to move off. Um, And she moved to West Texas in a town called Odessa. Mm -hmm. And while there, she worked at the Twin Peaks there. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though there's mixed reviews about it, um, she absolutely loved her experience there and had no trouble making friends. She was super, super friendly, outgoing, upbeat, positive, and she was living like the dream she wanted. She traveled and she moved away from everyone and just kind of like started over. Yeah. So in 2017, she was actually engaged, but it didn't work out, and she called it off. Um, Her friends really helped her get over this breakup, Um, and she really just kind of, like, dove into her friends. Like, she made a ton of friends through Twin Peaks, and she had regular customers. Um, After that, um, her breakup in 2017, she started dating a regular that came to Twin Peaks named Tom Sharkey. And they just absolutely hit it off. Um, Tom is a very buff guy. He's basically like, some people said he looked like a gentle, like a gentle giant. He was just like a big teddy bear. Um, So Tom is a consultant in the oil business. and (laughs) Not a teddy bear move. Not. Um, And he's also 23 years older than Sharky. Wait, oh, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, he's also 23 years older than Alexis. So he's, but I mean, he's buff. Probably, she probably thought he was attractive. Yeah. He works in the oils. I'm pretty sure he's got some money. Oh, no, yeah. An oil. He's an older man. So, you know, he's got it all. Yeah. Um, So he's in his 40s. He's previously divorced and he has two kids. And he, like I said, he's just a big guy compared to her. Yeah. Um, And since he was in the oil business, he traveled a lot. And Alexis loved this because she got to travel with him. And travel was, you know, one of her main goals. Something that she really enjoyed. Um, So she was sick of working and trading her time for money at Twin Peaks. Um, Mm -hmm. She realized that when she was with Tom... Um, she really wanted to travel with him, but if she was working like an hourly job at Twin Peaks, she couldn't really do that. Mm 
Um, so she was burnt out at Twin Peaks and she started using and working for Monet. No way. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually, even though a lot of people, um, if you don't know about Monet, it's basically an MLM. Um, and it's for like hair care. They also have like some skincare stuff. And I think they did like, like, suppl- like some supplements maybe. I don't yeah, really know. Yeah, they have some like healthy powders or whatever. Yeah. So Monet is an MLM. They've had, <laughs> they've had three class action lawsuits against them for fraud and deception. So take that as you will. Um, but Alexis was really, really successful at Monet and she made a lot of money. Oh, good. Good for her. Um, she then decided that she was going to quit Twin Peaks and was going to be a Monet influencer full time. Wow. And she even worked her way up to executive director and was making over $34,000 a month. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> That's it. I'm selling it. <laughs> I'm. Yeah, so basically with an MLM, you have to, there's usually like an upfront cost because you have to buy some products. Yeah. And then you sell them and then you try to recruit people under you and you train them and then you like, as you train people, you work your way up. Right, right, right. And so that's kind of how it works. Yeah, yeah. And so since she was an executive executive director, she was making around $34,000 a month. And because she was so successful, her and Tom traveled even more often together. And Monet sent her on trips as well. Like, I think she went to Cancun, and there's, like, videos that she posted on YouTube. Um, she was living a fabulous lifestyle and had tons of money and friends. Like, really living, mm-hmm. like, the dream life. For real. 34000 um, a month, please. <laughs> she also had over 20,000 Instagram followers. Oh, wow. Um, so... With, it kind of seemed like with Monet, um, when you're doing, you are selling stuff online, but you're also selling the lifestyle that comes with it. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, I get freedom and and like I get to do this lifestyle and travel and like do all these things and have mm-hmm. like all this stuff. Um, but no shade to if you are in an MLM or you sell Monet, like I respect the hustle. Yeah, no shade. No get shade. Your money. Get your money. I mean, if $34,000 a month, like... Please. Like, I can't say anything about you. So no, yeah, go for it. So she posted regularly, like, every day. So she had, like, stories. She posted to her feed every day. Um, and in the summer of 2019, her and Tom were engaged and moved to Colorado. And they documented a lot of their travels on YouTube, and they're still on there. You can look at them. Her Instagram is also still up. Um, and at the end of the year, they just, but even though they had a great time at the end of the year, they decided to move back to Texas. So they only lived in Colorado for about four months. Um, and since she was an influencer, her life and relationship looked perfect on social media and YouTube. But like they say, like your social media is just what you want people to see. We don't really oh, yeah. know how their relationship was outside of what she was showing, but in their YouTube videos, they do look a lot in love. They're, like, kissing and joking and, like, being very playful. So, to the outside, it looks like everything was great. Yeah, as it always does. hmm So, December 2019, they got married in, Col- in a Colorado courthouse wedding. And in the beginning of 2020, they moved back to Houston, Texas. And at this time, it was... 
Um, Tom was 49 and Alexis was 26. Mm. So when they got back, Alexis didn't have any friends in Houston. So she joined Bumble BFF to make friends and meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she meets a, she meets a girl named, like named Tanya Ricardo or Tanya Ricardo, who was a recently divorced single mom who also wanted to meet friends. She had, I mean, she had a pretty decent friend group, but I feel like she was always like trying to make new friends, like grow her circle. And she invited Alexis over to her house for a friendship dinner and Alexis fit right in with everyone there. Mm -hmm. Um, She was very friendly and kind and it was easy for everyone to instantly like her. Like, I feel like she's one of those people like who's really maybe like warm and engaging and they're just Mm -hmm. really easy to get along with. Oh yeah. And so Alexis also introduced some of her friends in Monet to her new friend group, and they ended up being a huge, like, girl gang. Like, they, they were just, like, this huge group of, like, girls, like, yeah. friends. That's how it goes. And so, but it was huge. I want to say it was probably, like, almost ten girls. Like, they mm. were all just, like, this huge, like, girl group. That's how it goes. And so they also had a group chat, and Alexis was very involved in the convos in the group chat. Um, a lot of people say that... When a conversation started, she was usually, like, the first one to, to like, reply. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of her friends joked around and said that her phone was just, like, attached to her body at all times. Yeah. Like, she always had her phone in her hand. I feel like they say the opposite about me sometimes, or at least my mom would. <laughs> like, you can't ever get a hold of me. Or I yeah. text back, like, years later, and I'm like, oh, my bad, I was napping. That's, that's true. Um, how many notifications did you have on your phone, like, last week before you deleted a lot of them? Well, now I'm back. So I have 211 text messages. It's appalling. I that have gives me anxiety. 41,800 uh, emails. It doesn't make sense. I also have 155 YouTube notifications. <laughs> Girl, are you on YouTube? What's no, you doing on there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Am I? No. Anyway. So, um, so she had this really big girl gang. And they had a group chat, and Alexis was very involved in the convos and was constantly texting in the group. She always had her phone on her, and she didn't talk much about Tom when she was with her girlfriends, and he rarely hung out with her and her friends. Hmm. So, as we all know, um, early 2020, quarantine happened. And when quarantine happened, she joined TikTok like literally everyone else. (laughs) Like everyone and literally their mom. (laughs) Um... She introduces Tom as her TikTok, like in her TikTok. And it's also, I want to say on Instagram as well. And she shows their Halloween costumes where they dressed up as Vikings. Oh, that's cute. It was, it was a really good costume, actually. So we've made it through quarantine. We're now at November 2020. Mm. So at the beginning of the month, she went on two trips. One to Marta, Texas. Oh, yeah. Marfa? Marfa. Maybe it is Marfa. Marfa? Yeah, yeah. I've been to Marfa. Yeah. So she does one trip to Marfa, Texas, and then she goes to Tulum, Mexico. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> um, Tom was not with her on her trips, but they were just like girl trips. Like when yeah. she went to Marfa, she had like one of her friends. It was just like a two girl trip. And then yeah. when she went to Tulum, I think it was like her and like a little like group of her friends. Yeah. Marfa is where like all the, <laughs> all the like artists like have like the mini stores or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so like usually influencers go there and take photos. I have some photos in front of the mini Prada store. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, that's exactly where her pictures were. I do remember we went super far out of our way because we were on our way back from California. And we got there and I was like, this is cool. But it's literally just for the gram. <laughs> I was so tired. I was it's like, It's literally like in the middle of a desert, right? It's in the middle of nowhere. You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Not worth it, in my opinion. She went there for pics. Of obviously. course. Obviously. I'll post mine. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure when I do our social media that I add the picture of you. In yeah, there. add the picture of me and Marfa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when she got back from her trip, she started making her Thanksgiving plans. So she calls her mom and lets her know that she won't be coming home for Thanksgiving. And at this point, she hadn't been home for a year, but was planning was planning to come visit for December for Christmas. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a little bit to Thanksgiving. So she texted her mom that morning um, and just kind of like wished her happy Thanksgiving and they kind of like chatted for a minute and then that was it. Um, but she stayed home on Thanksgiving um, with Tom. And later that evening, she went to Tanya's home for Thanksgiving dinner and didn't bring Tom. And I think that's kind of strange. I feel like when you're newlyweds, you usually want to spend holidays together. Yeah, no, holidays. And this was their first Thanksgiving together yeah, as like no. a married couple. I'm sorry, that's weird. I'm calling and smelly. so she brought, she went to her friend Tanya's house and Tom didn't go with her. She didn't bring him. I don't really know too much backstory of that. I just know he wasn't there. Um, so around midnight, she actually went to a bar with one of her girlfriends and she stayed out until three. <laughs> so... Uh. But, I mean, relatable. Um, She was about to leave, um, so she called Tanya and let her know that she was coming back to her house to get some of her things, and she also had to, like, get her car. Right. Because she went with her friend. Right. So, now we're going to the next day, Black Friday, day Mm -hmm. after Thanksgiving. If you don't live in the U.S., Black Friday is kind of like when the Christmas season really starts, like after our Thanksgiving sales are insane. The stores are crazy. People like go out to get all the sales, like the best sales that they can get before Christmas. The only thing like what black Friday is. Yeah, pretty much. The only thing that's ever worth black that made black Friday worth it to me is online. Mm -hmm. When it all moved online, I was like, okay, I get it now. Mm -hmm. This is actually worth my time. Get it delivered to my house. Yeah, I was never a really big Black Friday fan, but I love Cyber Monday. I love Cyber Monday. And this year was kind of different because I feel like a lot of stores had their Black Fridays, like, early. Everything was online. Instead of, like, on Cyber Monday, and they had, like, special days and all Yeah, everything was online. It wasn't just, like, in-store because of, obviously, COVID. It was online, Mm -hmm. which was, like, the absolute sickest. It was just awesome. Yeah. Big fan. I, I participated. It was my first Black Friday to ever participate, and it was because I did it from home. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> the easiest. The, the easiest. easiest and safest way, honestly, yes, even to in, do Black Friday. Even without COVID, the safest way to do Black Friday. Yes, you don't have to worry about people like bumping into you. Trampling you to death. That's a real yes. thing. I'm, oh, yeah. I know. Yes. I have stories. <laughs> Another time. And Yeah, different time. Okay, so... Black Friday 2020, day after Thanksgiving, November 27th. Um, so everyone from Monet was up really early that morning, and they were trying to post about their sales. Mm-hmm. So everyone was like, we have these great deals. And, of course, they are trying to, like, sell, 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 sell. It's Black Friday. But Alexis was silent. She was not on social. She wasn't posting about any sales or anything. So, but Alexis did get in the group chat, and she asked everyone, like, 
what they were doing, like what their plans were for the day. Mm-hmm. But mostly everyone was busy with family and trying to ramp up Black Friday that they didn't really, like, they weren't doing anything. Like, they were just constantly trying to, like, spend time with their families while they had the chance, kind of probably recuperating after, like, Thanksgiving. Right. And so, but Tanya offered that everyone come to her house the next day on Saturday, and they could do, like, a girls' night and, like, watch movies and all that <laughs> stuff. So fun. hmm So around 6, um, that was the last time that anyone heard from Alexis, and she didn't post all day, which was very strange for her. She yeah. posted religiously every single day. Mm-hmm. And it's really even just more weird because it was Black Friday. So if, if she's going to post any day, she would have posted on that day. Yeah, that's when you make your change. Mm-hmm. So a few hours later, Tom texted one of Alexis's friend's boyfriends. His name is John, asking if he or anyone has seen Alexis. Um, Tom told John that him and Alexis got into a huge fight and that she had left. Mm. Um, John got a weird feeling right off the bat um, because later on, Tom changed his story. Mm. And they were on the phone talking for like 45 minutes. And he just, he got a weird feeling that something wasn't right. So some things that Tom said was that like, these are his like changing stories. So one, one thing that he said was that they got into a huge fight and that she was barefoot. She stormed out of the house, crawled over the fence, and she went into a black car that was there to pick her up. (laughs) Okay. Um, But he later says... That she could have left on foot. She could have just ran off. Okay. Which is very different. Yes, you would know. Okay, you would know the difference. Um, and in one version, she left her phone. But in another version, um, he said that she took her phone with her. Mm. And he kept calling people to see if they had seen her. Yep. No, that's, uh, that's fishy. So the next day after Black Friday, Saturday. So on Saturday... Um, everyone in the group chat was talking about the girls' night and movie day, like, planning, like, when are we going to meet up? What are we going to wear? Like, what are we going to do? And Alexis did not respond to any texts, which we know that she's usually the first one to respond, and it Mm -hmm. caught everyone off guard that they were not hearing from her. Yes. So her friends thought that that was really strange and instantly checked her social media and saw that she hadn't posted in over 12 hours, which was very unlike her. Ooh. And so they were instantly all creeped out, and they hoped that she may show up. Um, they thought maybe, I don't know, that she was maybe slept in or whatever. So they kind of just, like, ignored it and ignored the creepy feeling that they got, and they hoped that she would show up to Tanya's house, but she didn't. And they kept calling her, and she wasn't answering any calls or texts. Like, all the girls were, like, calling her constantly and trying to text her. That's weird. And they were not hearing from her. So... So Tanya went over to their house to see if Alexis was home, but no one answered the door. And so she kind of struggled for a minute and she didn't know if she was being like too cautious, but she decided that, no, this is probably an issue. So she called Alexis's mom, Stacy. Mm. Um, so she told Stacy's mom that she was worried, but without, Tanya knowing Tom had already talked to Stacy to let her know that he didn't know where Alexis was and he hadn't heard from her. Hmm. So around 9 p.m., her friends decided to file a missing person report 
And then they called Tom to let him know. So he didn't make a missing persons report. Her friends had to rally together at the police station and make a missing persons report. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. So at this point, she's been missing for a good, like, almost 24 hours, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, so her friends and family instantly started posting on social media about Alexis's disappearance along with her white Jeep, like what she drove. Mm-hmm. We have no information if her car was also missing or not. Okay. They just, like, input that in the flyers that they put online. In case she, yeah. So, little did they know that before this even happened, a body was found that morning only three to four miles from Tom and Alexis's home and about 10 miles away from downtown Houston. Oh, my God. The body was placed on the side of the road and was nude. And when officers came to the scene, they thought it was weird because the body was really clean. Like, there was no dirt, nothing. Like, it was just, like, a clean, creepily clean body. Forensic. Mm -hmm. Forensic countermeasure. And so the way it was, the way the body was discovered was that road workers or city workers, Mm -hmm. probably like the highway department, um, they were driving and they thought it was a mannequin. (sighs) It's never a mannequin. But they don't listen to this podcast, obviously, because they would know that it's never a mannequin. Nope. Sorry, folks. So he thought it was a mannequin, so he drove by, but he was very disturbed by it. So he called his supervisor and let him know because he was really bothered. And the supervisor went where the driver described and discovered that it wasn't a mannequin. And it was Alexis Sharkey, and she had no purse, phone, or ID. She had nothing with her. She was just there naked with nothing. Oh, my God. So the next day on Sunday, the police inform her family and friends, and they call in Tom to identify the body. Mm. So he identified, and then they told her friends and family. Yeah. Um, There was no sign of trauma or any wounds. So at first, police didn't classify it as a homicide. She had no trauma, no stab wounds, like nothing. I'm sorry, but how do you not? I'm sorry. Keep going. So police learn in their investigation that Alexis is a public figure and that she has a pretty large social media following. So they start to get kind of suspicious, like maybe she was murdered because she's very famous and a lot of people know about her. Yeah. Um, Her friends immediately call BS on the fact that she was not a homicide case. Yeah. Um, they know that she was murdered and suspect that since she has no visible signs of trauma, that she must have been poisoned or like someone gave her drugs and made her OD. Mm-hmm. Um, family and friends are positive that someone hurt her. They say if she OD'd, someone forced her to do drugs. 100%. No, that's a real, so the, I think maybe we've talked about this before, but like there are definitely lots of killers who are masking killing people by by injecting them with drugs that's basically undetectable mm-hmm. one guy who's like a serial killer or he's been caught but he was killing women in ohio he was injecting them with overdoses of windex that's weird in their arms yeah well windex has like ammonia in it yeah interesting yeah but it, it doesn't turn up on toxicology because that's not what they're like looking for That's weird. Well, they only look for certain things. Right. And so they're not going to look for that. And so when they pull something up, they're going to be like, well, they didn't have any of this, this, or this. And so they're going to be like, it's a mystery. But you got to, like, test for it specifically. That's weird. And that's why these women were being classified as natural deaths. Natural. Even though they were, like, 30. No, bro. That was was unnatural. Yeah. It it eventually was discovered what happened. But, like... It's via natural. If she doesn't have any visible signs of trauma and, like... Anyway, is there a toxicology report? Are you getting there? I'm sorry. I'm getting there. Okay, keep going. 
So, as police start to dig and get into Alexis's life and they talk to her friends who are just really, I feel like every girl wants a group like this who, like, fights for you. Yeah. But so, as they start to investigate, they find some rumors and her friends tell her things and they just find some things out. So... Her friend that she went to Marfa with said that Alexis told her that things weren't great with Tom and that she was scared for her life. Oh, my God. Red flag. Big red flag. So, and her friend starts saying that she was about to divorce Tom and police find that papers were already being drafted and bank accounts were already split. Oh, frick. So her friends also say that when they went to Tulum, Alexis met a Houston DJ named Sebastian, and that for the rest of the trip, her and Sebastian really hit it off. Um, He's, he goes by Seb. Seb? So trendy. Seb. So Like Cher? Yes. I don't know what Cher's full name is, but yes. He goes by Seb. What if Cher's full name is Cheryl? Wouldn't that just be disappointing? Yeah, I don't like to think about that at all. She's keeping that under wraps, probably. I'll Google it after this episode and we can find out. I bet she's keeping it tight under wraps if it is. She said it's not uh, Cheryl. What if, name, what if her name is just Cher, though? No, but I feel like that's like people from the South who moved to L.A. to become influencers. They go from Cheryl to Cher. It's not <laughs> Cheryl anymore. It's just Cher. Yeah. Because they live in L.A. now. Love it. Sorry, keep going. Okay, so it's just interesting, though, because they met in Tulum, but they were living in the same city, which I thought was kind of fun. Yeah. So one of her friends claimed that they hooked up but some of her other friends say that she would she would have never done that. Okay. Well, we don't her, really know. It's her friends like, need to go on the, I mean, I guess you can... Uh, people do have different personalities depending on what friends you're with. Mm-hmm. Some friends you're with, you are, like, maybe a little more buttoned up. But then other friends you're with, you might be a little more, like, Yeah. Loosey. And it's, like, another thing is, like, she was in a different country. Maybe she was, like, there were there was drinking involved i'm sure if maybe she was just like I mean, forget what, tom i mean that's what i would do if i was in mexico i would just be drinking the entire time maybe she was like forget tom he's forget an old you, man tom you're 49 you're disgusting <laughs> you disgust me <laughs> so um so there's another rumor that she was low-key dating seb Mm. Um, and we don't really know if Tom, if that was true and if it was true, if Tom was cool with that or not. Right. Yeah. Cause that's always a factor that doesn't get brought into it. Yeah. So if she did actually get into a fight with Tom, why would she reach it? Why wouldn't she reach out to one of her gal pals? That's true. You know, why wouldn't she call Tanya and be like, Hey, like I need to stay at your house tonight or like any of her other friends or like have them come pick her up or I do think that you know, if she stormed out, I feel like she would have like a friend would have picked her up. Yeah. And even the one in that she went to Marfa with, like her friend knew that she was scared for her yes. life. So I feel like, yeah. So that's maybe she interesting. Didn't, maybe she me. didn't have a chance. Maybe. Yeah. We don't really know. So, um, she did get into a fight with Tom Okay, never mind. Okay, so Tom has, ever since her disappearance and her murder, Tom has 100% cooperated with police. Ugh. He's been all about, like, finding her, like, finding out what happened to her, all the things. That's disappointing. So, I'm just kidding. police asked for anyone with surveillance footage from their home cameras to check because it might show something, either a crime or a certain car in the area. Oh, like, neighbors with their rings in the area? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just, like, you know how some people have, like, cameras, like, 
on their yeah. house. Did they yeah. look into Seb? We'll get into that. Oh, okay. Okay, so... Um, but there was a beauty salon nearby, and it did have a camera facing where the body was dumped, but Houston police have not commented or released the footage to the public. We know nothing Ooh. about it. We know nothing about it. They that means not commented. That means there's something on it, baby. So, as far as Tom goes, he has only made, like, one public appearance, and it was via phone, because COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very emotional, very, very, very emotional. Hmm. And many on social media think Tom was involved. Tom has also received death threats, and he was adamant that he has done everything he can to, like, help the police. And I do feel like like we don't really know. And so, in a way, like, I mean, I have, like, a, I'm going to go into theories here soon, and I have a theory that I strongly believe, but no one has been, we don't know if it's Tom or not. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. So, um, so Tom is now saying that Alexis was not as happy-go-lucky as she seemed online. And as her friends have portrayed her, he says that she was very stressed and depressed behind the scenes and that he was always trying to build her back up. Like that was kind of like his role for her was like, she would just like break down and she was having a really, really hard time. And he was like, he almost made it sound like he was her caretaker. Like he really like tried to make her feel better okay i I, hold on hold on let me say something about this because to an extent that can be true in relationships Mm -hmm. but the way it sounds like he's making it sound is oh i'm her savior oh Mm -hmm. i so it's like he's distancing himself as far as possible from like i would never but yeah and then i'm like what are you trying to prove by uh-huh. putting her dirty laundry out there? Like, if she was depressed or whatever, like, she's gone now. What does it matter? Yeah, why are you going to tell everyone about Are you about trying something? to make people feel bad for you? That's Yeah, why would you tell like, everyone something that your wife can't consent to you telling anymore? But then again, like, like, a lot of people say, like, we've never been in that situation, so we don't really know. Like, we don't know his personality. We don't know her personality. We don't know the amount of grief he was in, like... No, I'm you're just, right. I'm just bringing it up innocent that he until, said this. Innocent until proven guilty. You're right. Yeah. So he also now denies that the fight that they had the night she disappeared and that she was using her drinking as a coping mechanism. And he said the last time he saw her, she left the house drunk and that he tried to stop her. Okay. Now I'm sorry. <laughs> we were just trying to be like friend, not friendly, but a little like giving him some benefit of the doubt. And now he has yeah. to be like, so she was depressed and she was a drunkard. I was the only good thing in her life. And I tried to stop her, but then she left. What? What? Yeah. I can't, I can't with you, Tom. So, but yeah, which I mean, it could have happened. We don't know. We don't know which of his stories happened because they've changed so many yes, times. Exactly. So her friends are adamant that she was never down and that she was a light um, and she was the glue that kept the friend group together and that she was always positive. I'm sorry, but those people definitely do go through depression. Mm-hmm. If not That's the highest. That's just what they say. I know, I know. But if not the highest, check on your friends, everybody. And her family and friends were never worried about Tom before Alexis's disappearance. They never got, like, weird vibes from him. They always said he was really nice and, like, engaging. And he, even though the media and, like, the story, a lot of stuff is centered on him because he's the husband. And his story, if his stories wouldn't have changed so many times, 
it would have been more believable. But like, if your story changes that much, like you're automatically like suspicious. Yeah, in my view, yes. The story changed a lot. He called everyone saying, I don't know where she is. Mm-hmm. But he didn't file a missing persons report. That's weird to me. To call, and almost it's like you're building a stage. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Keep going, sorry. So after November and December, it's kind of like there's not a lot left. We mm-hmm. don't really know. And then December 19th and 20th happens. And the, after the autopsy finally comes back, and the medical examiner concludes that her cause of death was strangulation. I was literally, it was like on the tip of my tongue. And then I was like, but wouldn't there be bruising? It didn't. Strangulation. Yeah. And so I did try to look up and see if there was a toxicology test. And I couldn't find anything about toxicology. Okay. But so, strangulation, like that's. Yeah. And then she was so clean. That automatic forensic countermeasure, baby. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Tom's looking, Tom's not looking good. It's about to look really even worse for Tom. I'm oh, just, Tom. You know, Tom, Tom, Tom. So one thing that was a red flag to her friends after they found out that it was strangulation was that um, Tom was referring to Alexis in past tense before they had even found her body. <gasps> That is the ultimate psychological sign. If you talk to any... Her friends notice. They're like, that's weird that he's talking about her because we don't know where she is. So why is he talking about her in past tense? Okay, there's this investigator, and I'm going to totally blank, but I watched this video of him where he goes over, like, in interviews, how they know when someone has committed the crime and, like, all the cues, the verbal cues. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, one of them, like, referring to a missing person in a past tense when you don't, like, that's an automatic. Because it's so, like, I guess if you're a murderer, like, a murderer, you know, it's, like, in your subconscious, but you don't even think about, like, No, because you're naturally, yeah, your subconscious is naturally speaking, Mm -hmm. and you know she's gone. Exactly. Oh, God, Tom. Tom. It's not looking good for you, babe. No, in in the court of public opinion, (laughs) innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty, bub. Sorry, keep going. Okay, so her friend started a GoFundMe um, for $15,000 for her funeral expenses and for her body to be moved from Texas to Pennsylvania so she could be buried near her family. Yeah. And the GoFundMe actually exceeded $26,000. Yeah. So it should go. It's a lot of money. That should go to some investigative legal fund or something. (laughs) So, since Tom was her next of kin, he had complete control over where she would be buried. No. So, when Alexis was found, Stacy, her mom, and Tom agreed that she would be buried in Pennsylvania. But then, they had issues because Tom completely ghosted her mom. Oh. And also, Tom did not claim the body. What? Because what she he identified her, but when you're the next of kin, I guess when someone dies, you have to like claim it, mm-hmm. like, and that you like plan the funeral, and you're like, you have to do the thing, you have to claim it and uh-huh. decide like what you're gonna do with it. It can't stay in the morgue forever, right? And so he never claimed her body for like two weeks. Uh uh-uh. uh And so after that, um, after two weeks of not hearing from Tom, the medical examiner moved her family into the next of kin, and she was able to be buried in Pennsylvania. That's insanity. And have her funeral there. 
Yeah, so, and obviously, you know, electric forensics is going to be a huge in this case. Mm-hmm. Huge. Like, what was she saying on social? Who was she talking to? Mm-hmm. Who was she texting? Who did she had? Who was she in contact with? But now I feel bad because she's this social celebrity, and now even more of her private life is about to be just mm-hmm. everywhere. Yep. Put that um, for her. So detectives are getting phone and social media records to see who Alexis talked to around the time she went missing. Um, and rumors online are rampant. I can imagine. Shocker, thinking that Tom did it. <laughs> We're just fueling that right now. We're a part of that. Yes. We are the rumors on the internet. And I'm sure they have already started like looking into her phone records, but obviously there's nothing online about it. We don't know anything. It's so recent. Yeah. And so... Like, Alexa- I remember. I remember what I was doing on those dates you mentioned. Like, oh my God. Yeah. And another thing that is a gigantic, probably the biggest red flag... Of all red flags. So Alexis's friends say that Tom was very physically abusive and that he choked her during sex. Oh, no. Until the point that she would black out. No! No! And a lot of times she would wake up in different rooms in her house and be like, 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 it's, she also told her friends that sometimes he would choke her even when they weren't having sex. No. No. Okay. Men should know that women talk about their sex lives with their friends and, in know, depth. I'm not every detail. To, I'm not here to kink shame, but blacking out is... No, that's way too it's far. It's too much for me. That's way too far. Way too murdery. Um, especially if you're going to die of strangulation. That's just a little, it's a little, little bit of a red flag. Uh, it's not a coincidence. That's for sure. A little bit. A little bit of a red flag for me. And here are some theories... Tell me the theories. Theory time. I didn't go into Reddit because I knew it'd be, that bad. I'd be there for a long time. Yeah, no, let's just stick with the main. So some theories that I've heard are, there's several. Okay. So there's a theory that many think she may have been accidentally choked during sex to the point where she died. Oh, it was like an accident. Yeah, and okay. he tried to, like, cover it up because he didn't want to get in trouble, and he just, like, dumped her. Yeah, because he would have went to jail for manslaughter at that point. <sighs> yes. Um, some think that Tom found out about her fling with Seb and strangled her out of rage and jealousy. Yep, I could see that, too. Um, many think she may have spent Thanksgiving night with Seb, and he killed her after accidentally giving her too many drugs. And some people think this, since Seb was a DJ mm. and he went to raves a lot, that maybe, and this is all speculation, maybe he had, like, some knowledge of drugs and maybe she went out, because she did go out Thanksgiving night with her friend. Mm-hmm. Maybe Seb met them. Maybe they are trying to, like, maybe they did do drugs and he accidentally gave her too much and she died. Like, but, we don't know. But they said he, she died of strangulation. Then how would that Yeah, theory... but this is just, like, a theory. A theory, okay. Um. So... I'm going to say it's Uh, not that. Yeah. Like I said, these are just theories. I'm just throwing them out there into the wind. So, um, some also think that she, that on Thanksgiving night, she hung out with Seb and Tom got pissed off Mm. and killed her. Yeah. Um, some also think that Tom killed her on black Friday and that was why she didn't post anything on social. And they think that he was texting her friends Friday evening and Saturday. Yep. I was just thinking that. Uh, It's also worth noting that his divorce that happened in 2009, his ex-wife got full custody and that Tom only got supervised visits because his mental health was not 100%. No, no, yep, 
Mm-hmm. He went a little wild after his divorce, and he talked a lot about suicide, and he got real dark there for a minute. Um, and also, he used his kids as pawns no. to manipulate his ex-wife. Mm. And at one point, she did something that he didn't. She did something that he didn't want her to do. Like I don't know if he just like she's like pissed him off or what. Mm-hmm. But he sent his ex-wife nudes to her employer. Nope. 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 So that's just fun little fact about Tom there about character. Um. So Alexis. There, there's another theory that Alexis broke up with Seb and he was so angry that he killed her. Mm. Um, and there's another theory that her friends, mainly Tanya, killed her. Um, and I'm going to go on a limb and say, in my opinion, Tanya is a little cray. She's a little yeah. cray cray. Um, that's a weird, that's okay. Explain. She a few years ago, before she was a friends, before she was friends with Alexis, she was on an episode of Inside Edition, and she made it on the episode because she got eight plastic surgeries in one day to make her look more like Meghan Markle. No, so there's some there's something weird there, like killer. I'm not sure, but there's. There's something a little weird with her. Like, she could have been very, like, insanely jealous of, like... Maybe. But strangulation, that's... Most women who kill, it's not by strangling. Yeah. And then there's obviously the Cray stalker theory. She was very well-known on social. Maybe someone was really obsessed with her, and they just had to kill her for it. (laughs) They just had to kill her for it. (laughs) And then the last one, that maybe it was just a random... A random killer. Like an opportunistic killer. Like she mm-hmm. left the house after a fight and opportunistic killer took advantage. That is a real thing that does happen, mm-hmm. but there's just too much here. So after, after all this happened, um, her social media presence has grown up to over 70,000 followers. Oh, because of people who are trying to show their support. Mm-hmm. Who runs the account now? No one? I don't think anyone does that I know of. I mean, I haven't, nothing has been updated since she went missing. Nothing says like it's a memorial page. Like her girl gang, her girl gang should run the account and should use it to post things about her case. Yeah. But her mom says that she's really happy that her following has grown because it shows that even in her death, her daughter is bringing like light and positivity to the world. (sighs) And her mom, Stacy hasn't blamed anyone for her daughter's murder yet, but she says she's letting the police do their job and that will, we'll all see what comes of it. Yeah. No one has been arrested. Tom is still out there living his good old life. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's good. He is getting like death threats and stuff, <laughs> um, but he's free and whoever, whoever killed her, whether it was Tom or not is out there mm-hmm. in Houston, just living it up, living it up. And that is my story about the death of Alexis Sharkey. Um, so I did a lot of online research, but there wasn't anything new. Um, my two main sources were two YouTube videos that I watched. Um, the first one was from Kendall Ray, and it's called Who Killed Influencer Alexis Sharkey? She's a great YouTuber. Highly recommend her. All of her stuff is great. She has unsolved murders. Um, murders that have been solved, crimes that have been solved. She does some like 
conspiracy theories. Her and her husband have a podcast, but she also has her own YouTube channel, and I'm a huge fan of her. I think she's the best true crime YouTuber by far, in my opinion. Love it. Um, and I also watched another YouTube video called Coffee by Coffee Coffee and Crime Time oh, called great name. What Happened to Alexis Sharkey. That's a great name. And so I kind of like got all of my info from those two sources and then I tried to build on it with online stuff, but everything online was already in the YouTube videos. Um, so I'm going to jump into it and I'm going to start with my sources. Of course, The Murder Squad, mm-hmm. uh, CBS, A&E, Wikipedia, and... My next source is the Chicago Reader, and it's an amazing article by Ben Austin. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start out with a quote, actually. Okay. She was a very valuable human being. I know they probably didn't see that in her, but we saw that in her, and we loved her very much. And that is uh, a quote from Sharon Pritchett. She is the sister of murder victim Gwendolyn Williams. Ooh, I don't know this one. So Williams, well, wait for it. Williams was found in 2002 on the 4800 block of North Sheridan in Chicago. She was half nude. She was covered in blood. Semen was found nearby. She had a lot of drugs in her system, and her her strangler's skin was found under her fingernails. She had been strangled to death. So the Chicago Police Department has a 30% close rate on murder cases. I thought this was going to be an Arkansas case. No, I changed my mind. Oh, okay. I changed my mind. Okay. This is, this is fun. Keep this going. is fun. So uh, the Chicago Police Department has a 30% close rate on murder cases, which is Not horrible. Great. Do you want to know what their budget is for their police department? What? $1.6 billion. Yes. With a B. Yes. And they have a 30% close rate on murder cases. Talk about misuse of funds. So... I will say, though, Chicago has a lot of murders. But... And so maybe they're just really understaffed. They have more murders than $1.6 billion can handle? Come on. I don't know. I'm just saying what I know. So in 2018, the nonprofit Murder Accountability Project, which everyone should go online and spend hours there... The Murder Accountability Project, it's a—it's essentially, it's an algorithm that is made to detect similarities in murders. Okay. And the Murder Accountability Project, which has actually closed lots of cases, they made a shocking announcement, a shocking claim, uh, that they believe that one man in Chicago has murdered 51 women from 2001 to 2021. I'm sorry. This murderer, what? Yeah, this murderer has become dubbed the Chicago Strangler. Wow. So, I, Gwendolyn Williams. I've never heard about this. Yeah, I'm intrigued. It's because it's recent. So the quote I opened up with about the murder victim Gwendolyn Williams in 2002, she's considered one of the first victims of the Chicago Strangler, and okay. there has been a victim as recently as this year. Oh my god. There's like no information about it though. So I'm not able, I was not able to find information about it, except that there is a suspected victim as, as recently as this year. Okay. Um, because obviously it's all very new because uh, the Murder Accountability Project did not make the claim until 2018. But when they did, 
man, things really started rolling. So, you know what? I don't have to try Chicago-style pizza. Um, <laughs> I'll be fine. We cancel Chicago just I'm on this fine. podcast. Yep. We canceled New Mexico. We'll cancel you, Chicago. Canceled, don't try us. We canceled the Great Smoky Mountains, New Mexico. <laughs> Chicago also now off limits. Don't go. Don't go. I love Chicago. I love, I love uh, New Mexico. I don't love the Great Smoky Mountains. I stand by that. But <laughs> I'll go back Do to New Mexico. Do you love Chicago enough to get murdered for it? No, I don't. I'm not saying you're going to get murdered when you go to Chicago. I'm just saying. Hold on. Let me keep going. Okay. Um, hold on. So, um, Sharon Pritchett, who I mentioned earlier, is the sister of murder victim Gwendolyn Williams, who I opened with. Um, her and her other sister were determined to solve Gwendolyn's murder. So they went on the murder accountability project known as MAP website to see if there were similar murders to their sisters. And it turned out that in the same area of Chicago, there were 50 and Gwendolyn makes 51. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Gwendolyn's suspected to be one of the first victims. The director of the murder accountability project, also known as MAP, his name is Thomas Hargrove, and if he sounds familiar, it's because he is a very experienced true crime investigative reporter. He reported on the Green River Killer when he was caught, I think it was like 2001, mm -hmm. and uh, he essentially decided after Green River Killer was caught, he wanted to build an algorithm that could essentially like connect serial killing crimes because there is so little communication cross country about crimes, about mm -hmm. like cases. And that's how a lot of serial killers get away with it yeah. is because they know how to work the lack of communication that police departments have with each other. So MAP um, was created as this algorithm and it's been actually very successful. Uh, so Thomas Hargrove, the director, he said he... he basically has been doing a lot of interviews since this has all came out and said that their algorithm has actually been signaling that there's a serial killer active in Chicago for years. And he has been telling the Chicago PD for years that they most likely have a serial killer and uh, he's been ignored. And it wasn't until the victim's family started becoming very vocal uh, that the Chicago PD started to actually look into the claims that a serial killer has been successfully working among them for almost 20 years. So what do these victims have in common? Uh, they have all been strangled and they have all been dumped in abandoned areas, either abandoned buildings, dumpsters, or alleys, which is horrible. Uh, one of the women in 2018 who had been dumped in, she was dumped behind someone's house in a dumpster. And when the woman went to go put her garbage in the dumpster, she opened it and found the body decomposing. And oh, no. how traumatizing is that? That's very traumatizing. She, I can't even yeah. imagine. So Thomas Hargrove, the director of MAP, this is not the first time that he's raised a red flag about a potential serial killer working underneath the department's nose. In 2010, Hargrove contacted the Gary, Indiana Police Department to let them know that MAP's algorithm had detected a possible serial killer in their midst. This was in 2010. So Gary, Indiana PD, they were like, you're crazy, Tom, but, you know, come around for a beer or two next time. But you're crazy. There's no serial killer in Gary, Indiana. Uh, it went ignored until in 2014, a man was caught after he strangled a 19-year-old woman to death, and then he promptly confessed to six more murders in the area. Gary, Indiana had had a serial killer 
for 10 years. And Thomas Hargrove had told them four years prior that they did, and the police department ignored it until 2014 when the man confessed to the other five murders. So Thomas Hargrove, this isn't the first time either. There's some more cases where he's alerted police departments ahead of time. Hey, our algorithm is detecting that you could potentially have a serial killer, and he's been right. So Mm -hmm. his algorithm is actually very successful, has a high success rate, and he has been telling the Chicago PD for years they have a serial killer. It's only recently become more publicized. You have a cow on your shirt? (laughs) It's only become more publicized. And Hargrove has been giving interview after interview since 2018 when this really became publicized. And he said he is more than confident that Chicago is looking at a serial killer. Mm. So, however, the Chicago PD has refused to do an interview about the case or even comment more than saying that there's very little evidence for many of the cases. But then there was Beverly Scott. So Mm -hmm. Beverly Scott is an activist in Chicago for women in high-risk lifestyles. When MAP brought to the public's attention the possibility of a serial killer in these 51 cases, Scott looked at the cases of these women and remembered a time when she was a single mother living in the Chicago housing projects and living that high-risk lifestyle, quote-unquote. Today, Scott has photos of her and her once mentor, Barack Obama, hanging in her sunroom, (laughs) as well as a plethora of other high-profile residents of Chicago who she is well-connected with. Interesting. One of those people is the chief of detectives in Chicago, Detective Dina Hahn, which I did not figure out how to pronounce. So does she just have pictures of those people because she's like an advocate? Yes. She became basically when she got out of her high-risk lifestyle, she became an advocate for women and became actually a very, like, kind of a powerful political figure in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And she actually helped Barack Obama win his, like, his state senate race. And, like, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, But she also took classes from him and all kinds of stuff. He was kind of, like, a community mentor to her. Mm -hmm. And then, but she's also got photos with lots of other high-profile people from Chicago. And one of those is the chief of detectives in Chicago, Detective Dina Hahn, to whom she brought a quilt of the 51 women that she dubbed the remembrance quilt to remind him these 51 women have unsolved cases and you're ignoring it because you don't want to admit if there's a serial killer. She also informed him that she has been using her platform to let the women of Chicago know that they are being targeted and has even been passing out whistles throughout Chicago for women to keep on hand to call for help. In 2019, all of a sudden, after Beverly Scott got involved, the Chicago PD announced that they are going to be looking deeper into the cases of the 51 women, but were so overwhelmed by the intense crime, they could only spare four detectives to work through the 51 cases. So they also made a joint task force with the FBI's Violent Crimes Task Force. Unfortunately, less than half the cases even had DNA to be taken. Mm. And... Most of the cases of the women who had been found had been dismissed as domestic violence, drug-related, etc. So they didn't even bother to take DNA for most of them. That's the biggest eye roll. That's so annoying. And I think I forgot to mention earlier, the other thing all these women have in common is that they're black. Mm, okay. Says a lot. <laughs> it says a lot about the, the rest mm. of the story. We'll, we'll say a lot about that. Yeah. So the DNA that had been taken was inconclusive. So of the 18 women that did have DNA taken, there was 21 total pieces of male DNA found on all of them. And none of it was the same. And also, like, these women were potentially sex workers. And so there's obviously a chance yeah. that this DNA was not their killers. So it, it's... Right. So basically... um. They and the Chicago PD, when this came back, 
they announce that they don't believe these cases are connected because the DNA is inconclusive and that they don't they don't work in the same mindset that investigators do about serial killers where it's X, Y, and Z leads to this, mm-hmm. that they look at cold, hard facts because they're the Chicago PD. Well, it was uh, around this time that a police research firm launched an investigation into the Chicago PD and concluded in 2020 that the police department is not run efficiently to solve crime. Many of their officers are not even trained in how to handle homicide. Fine. But another veteran detective from the Chicago area pointed out that one of the questions that's not being asked is why is there no DNA on the other bodies? Why isn't, why wasn't DNA taken? And of the body that they said there was no DNA, that's very questionable. Why is there no DNA? Also, since they found like DNA under Gwendolyn's fingernails, are they linking her murder with these at this point? They had a suspect. Because if so, did they look under the other girl's fingernails? I'm going to say no. Because it's like, you're okay, if you are conscious and someone is choking, you're automatically going to be trying to like scrape mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. to get there. Like it's going to happen. And that's got to leave like some, some kind of something. Oh, yeah. So in the fall of 2020, this actually pushed an Illinois state legislature to present a bill to create a state task force for missing and murdered women in Chicago as a result of this extreme spike of killings of women, specifically a disproportionate amount of violence against black women in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Every time we call, this is a quote, every time we call a detective, they never call back. It feels like no one gives a damn. Latanya Moore, she's the mother of Shantaya Smith. Shantaya mm-hmm. Smith was murdered in 2018 her body was left in an abandoned home and was found two weeks later. When LaTanya reported her daughter missing to the Chicago Police Department, they told her that her daughter probably wanted to be away from her and would be back soon. It's upsetting. I'm sick of seeing this happening. This happens in so many cases where black women especially aren't taken seriously when they're being murdered at high rates. Yeah. People just think, Oh, they were a prostitute and it's fine and whatever. And then, and, but even like if they're not prostitutes, like it still happens. If you're just black in general, Mm -hmm. you're not giving the attention, you're not given the attention that you need. Exactly. And it's really upsetting and it needs to stop. You need to treat them like they're actually humans and life has been lost. 100%. So two weeks later, she was found strangled in an abandoned home. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So something else to note is that a lot of victims have been found in abandoned homes, largely from the 2008 housing crisis foreclosures. So the thing about these abandoned homes is that there's entire... Because the big thing has been, for all these 51 cases, there's no eyewitness reports. There's Mm -hmm. literally zilch. How do you live in a city that big and there's no eyewitnesses for 51 murders of women that are strangulations, which is very specific? Um, I also wonder if, and I've seen this a lot where it's like sometimes, especially if you live in like a, like in a part of a city or a town that has a lot of crime, a lot of times you don't talk because, because you could get like in trouble next. Well, this is another thing to point out is that because of the 2008 housing crisis foreclosures, there are entire blocks of Chicago that are abandoned homes that were never finished because Mm -hmm. of 2008. And a lot of these women are being found in those blocks. 
Um, so that explains why there would be no eyewitnesses to these crimes. This killer clearly understands the layout of the city and kills his victims where they won't be heard in one of the largest cities in America. Another reason that Map believes these kills are connected is because the killer's hunting ground is in a very close proximity. Most of the 51 killings occur in South and Southwest Chicago, mm-hmm. with, but there's a very strange within that perimeter. It's a North to South and back North pattern. It's almost like a back and forth, back and forth with the kills. It's a very specific area of Chicago. Another issue with the victims is that the ones who have had sexual assault kits performed on them have not been tested because of a ginormous backlog in the Illinois, like, uh, sexual, like, kits, like the sex uh, mm-hmm. crime kits or whatever. Like rape kits. Yeah, rape kits haven't been tested for years. It's literally on such massive backlog because the state hasn't put proper funding, all kinds of things. So any evidence there has not been looked at. Great. Great. Love I know. It. So uh, since the combined task force of the FBI and Chicago PD, where they claimed that they didn't have any evidence and they couldn't investigate anymore because they don't have the resources, four more victims have been identified by MAP mm. since okay. 2019. So there's been four more victims. Um, so there's not necessarily anyone to call because the Chicago PD is not convinced that this could be a serial killer or even a few serial killers from the Chicago PD's perspective. All of these women died in different ways. Uh, but experienced true crime reporters and investigators are adamant that if this isn't the work of one, it's certainly the work of a handful of men who have a deep knowledge of how to kill and how to get away with it. So let's get into some a couple prevailing theories. Okay. One of them is that the killer or one of the killers is actually a law enforcement officer who's taking advantage of the Chicago PD. If yeah. we know anything, it's that cops do know how to kill someone and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so another prevailing theory is that obviously it's not just one person, but that it could be anywhere between three and five serial killers who have been operating in Chicago since 2000. Which is scarier. I don't know if I believe that, though. Like, do you not think one of them would say something? It's very weird to think that three... I feel like that looks even worse on Chicago PD, that you've had three to five serial killers who have eluded you for this many years. Like, really? Yeah. And then it's like, do they take turns? Like, hey, bro, this month it's your turn. (laughs) It's you. Well, also... Like, it would make... It would make... If there's... If there... It's like a a group of them together that are working together, wouldn't there be like two... To the same killing, like, no, in one night? They don't think like, it's a team. They don't... No, no, no. The theory isn't a team. The theory is just that... There's the, just three. There's just three who... who Three to five who all work separately, but apparently all have the same MOs. And they all <laughs> attack black sex workers, and they all strangle them. Well, so one of the things is they... Not all of them are sex workers, um, and they do vary in age. Those are the two differences. They are... It's all black okay. women. It's, it's all black women... <laughs> They're all strangled and they're all left in an abandoned space. So it's either an abandoned home, an alley that is not traveled, or mm-hmm. garbage bins, which is two of the garbage bins were also set on fire, like garbage containers, like the big ones. So we know that Chicago PD isn't doing a great job, but I'm wondering, like, I just feel like if it's serial and it's happening, 
like, you would think that one of them would be caught or they'd have like a lead or something. Exactly. The concept that there's three to five killers is like, okay, even if that does... That's excessive. Yeah, even that's very excessive. Even though Chicago's a large city, that's still very excessive. But also it's like, that's even more embarrassing on you. What is the FBI saying? What are they saying? There's been like no statements made by the FBI. It's all been through the Chicago PD. The FBI has not made a statement. So, because technically they're not considering this a serial killer case. This is the only people who are considering this a serial killer case is basically major news stations, investigative reporters, like like true crime investigative reporters who have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And of course the murder accountability, uh, they map, they obviously have had a very high success rate and they're Mm -hmm. very adamant that they believe this is a serial killer. And uh, it's something that, like, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes went into depth that, like, they're they're very confident it's all, it is a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we do about it? Make noise. That's the best way to do anything about anything whenever the powers that be decide it's not important. Yep. You make a lot of noise. Let's keep talking about how black women are being murdered and the prevailing reasoning police are giving is drugs and or domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. That's that's bullshit. Let's talk about it. Let's make a Facebook group. Uh, let's be loud about that it's not okay to just write off the death of black women. Yeah, now, absolutely. If you do want to call in a tip, which obviously if you have any information, you should call in a tip because maybe that could be the thing that tips it. Uh, so you can call the Chicago Crime Stoppers. It's 1-800-535-STOP, S-T-O-P, if you do have tips. And I'm sorry I couldn't share more about the victims. Even if you don't have tips, maybe you should call and tell them to get their shit together. Just call them. Tell, tell them this is wrong. Tell them they suck and they need to get they need to get it together. 1.6 billion and you can't get it together. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't share more about the victims, which made me like honestly really I tried to share as much as I could that was out there. Uh, but honestly, I was trying to stay out of the deep dark Reddit hole. And not get too far down. But yeah. so that's why I tried to use quotes from family members who have come forward and have started to talk about it mm-hmm. and talk about their family members. Uh, so whether a one killer theory, two, three, or even 20 killers, it's extremely odd that 51 women have been killed and dumped in the same manner, in the same areas, no witnesses, no DNA, and they all share in common that they are black women. And they've all been strangled. What's even weirder to me is that detectives at the Chicago PD and the FBI don't find that odd. <laughs> so uh, they probably should. That's uh, that's the Chicago Strangler. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. What a great story. <laughs> a great terrible story. Yeah. I think it's. Wow. It's, I never. I haven't heard that one. Well, it's because it's so freaking new, and uh, that that. Uh, article i talked about by uh ben austin at the chicago reader it's called do you know these 51 women and it's really an amazing article i mean he 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 doesn't just go into like the victims or even the true crime he gets into about the chicago police department the miss the failings there like he gets into the victim's families like it's a really great article highly recommend but yeah it's either the chicago strangler or stranglers depending on what you believe but either way, there's definitely a killer or a few multiple killers that are loose yeah. in Chicago right now targeting black women. Jeez. 
Yeah. That's crazy. I've, yeah, I haven't heard about that. That's wild. Yeah, and what's crazy too is that some of the stuff you would read would be like, they're all sex workers, and that's not true. Yeah. Um, I think that that's another thing that's like, we, that is a, such a, not even just a, a dis, it's a disgrace to like, to mm-hmm. black women, to these black, that it was just automatically, they're drug, they're either drug addicts, it's domestic abuse, or they're, they're a sex worker. And yeah. it's like, if there was a, because uh, some of these women like help like a more like a daytime job, like a bank teller or this, if a white woman who's a bank teller goes missing or is found murdered in an abandoned building, yeah, there would be a huge stink about that. Now, yeah, you're right. white women who are sex workers also do not get the same level of attention, but black women who are even less. Yeah. It's really, it's horrible. There's this violence against women that's so dismissed. Um, I think there is a callousness that comes with working in, in a police department because you experience so much bad stuff, but try to find some humanity in that, that these are real people and you can't let your callousness get in the way of solving something. I want to know who did it. I want to know. know. I want to know, but they're taking advantage. It's someone who knows the city very well. They're taking advantage of the empty blocks and yeah, it's crazy. So the Chicago Strangler. But we all know this is not what you guys are here for. Not on this episode anyway. Yes. We have been like hinting about it. Not even really hinting. We've been talking about it on social last week about how we have a little bit of a guest. A little bit. We have two guests technically. We do. And uh, so we actually got the chance to sit down and talk to someone who you may have seen on 48 Hours, or maybe you read her exclusive interview with Harvey Weinstein, or (laughs) maybe you saw her on Dateline, but maybe you didn't know she has a book coming out tomorrow when this episode airs, April 6th, titled At Any Cost, a story about a father's betrayal, a wife's murder, and a 10-year journey for justice. I'm geeking out right now. I geeked out so hard. Uh, So who we got to sit down with? We got to sit down with Rebecca Rosenberg and her husband, Salim Algar, to talk about their book and their careers as true crime journalists in Manhattan. So listen in, check it out. Here it comes. So this is my husband. This is Salim Algar, and we're both reporters. Um, And we did this one together, so. Awesome. Nice. Um, okay. Do you want to just maybe, um, talk a little bit, um, about your story behind your book and how you guys got started and kind of just tell us about yourself? Yeah. Just kind of kick it off. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So we're both reporters for the New York post. I cover crime. My husband covers education and other things as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, we, uh, well, it started, I was covering this case from the very beginning. And when the case kind of started, uh, I was actually covering it before it was even in court um, when the crime first happened. And it always really intrigued me. And it just kind of took years and years. And everybody was saying, when is this guy going to get arrested? When is this guy going to get arrested? And uh, he did after, what was it, six years? Yeah. Um yeah, it took a really long time. Uh, and and then it sort of worked its way through the court system. And it was just this kind of incredible process and really a, um, I think, a really difficult process for the family who really felt that they 
may never get justice and, and that um, her murder would forever be, uh, you know, nobody would be held accountable for it. So it took 10 years, but it happened. So I think uh, the way it started was I was just sitting in court and said, well, this would be a good book. And um, a friend of mine gave me the, the, the email of an agent and I ran it by her and the publisher gave us this very short deadline initially of six months. We both work full time. We have two uh, young kids. So I said, hey, I'm going to need to rope in my husband here on this because there's no way I can finish this in six months by myself. We ended up getting an extension of two and a half months, but still eight and a half months was an extremely tight deadline. Yeah. Uh, and we, my mom ended up flying out for four months <laughs> yeah. and watched our kids. And we worked nights and weekends, mostly weekends. And it was just, it was a lot of work, but um, we got there. Here you are. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so. crazy. That is crazy. Uh, I think I forgot to send you send you this question over, but I, I thought of something uh, a little bit later today. You mm. mentioned to me that there was a lot of police corruption involved. What's something that we can expect to maybe learn about that? <laughs> I don't actually think there was police corruption. I think there was just kind of a sloppiness. Mm. It kind of what you wouldn't expect because you think generally of the NYPD as being this um, really incredible. And, and I think often they are, and they often do an incredible job. Just whatever happened here, the ball really got dropped. Uh, it, and I think there were a lot of factors that played in, but it was kind of the death, her death was suspicious from the get-go. And, and the police really just kind of, it, it was, it was a holiday when it happened. You know, they're just, I think people were trying to get out of there. Um, there were strict rules about overtime. So, um, you know, people, it, it just, you want to weigh in a little bit? It, it, yeah. It was less about corruption than it was just maybe some um, lack of quality in the, in the investigation. Uh, and was, there was sort of a rush to accept the initial uh, version that was put forth by um, the husband in this case, Rod. Uh, and they sort of they they accepted his his um, scenario, and the investigation sort of wound down probably a lot quicker than it should have. Um, and I think that's what emerged in the months and years after this happened, and it's what sort of made the it's what made Shelley's family, um, you know, very frustrated at times. And, you know, you also had this issue uh, about the lack of an autopsy in the case. And we sort of go into that in the book. Um, her family is very religious. They're Orthodox uh, Jews, uh, and they are very uh, hesitant to perform autopsies uh, on religious grounds. So, you know, here you had a potential homicide, but without the existence of a forensic autopsy that's going to uh, hamper the, you know, any investigation. So when they declined to do so, and it was a very tough decision for them when they, when they declined to do that, that sort of led to a lot of the, the, um, the uh, delays. Missteps. Yeah. A lot of the missteps. And there was really a breakdown in communication because the, the family was told that there, this wasn't suspicious. There was no evidence of foul play and that kind of played into their initial decision, but very quickly they had a change of heart. And because they sought the advice of a rabbi who said no to an autopsy, they felt they had to abide by that. 
the body was exhumed uh, several months later, and they immediately saw that she had a hyoid bone that had been snapped and knew then that this was a homicide. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So it, that was a, a very interesting part of it. Yeah. You kind of touched on this earlier. What was it like? You mentioned like talking about you guys writing this book together. It was weekends. It was nights. Like, what was that like journey like for you guys like together? <laughs> uh, we're, we're still sitting next to each other I suppose that's a good, I suppose that's a good sign but I mean honestly it's um it, it was a real challenge you know life is difficult enough and challenging enough with two kids and full-time jobs and so forth so to sort of um to add to that workload uh on every waking moment pretty much that you have was not easy and we just spent a lot of time in sitting in cafes, drinking bad coffee, and uh, eating a lot of pot. Eating a lot of stale, stale pastries, <laughs> yeah. not that we want or need. Um, but that's really, honestly, it's what it took. You just have to, it's yeah. labor. And I mean, it's, it's a lot of times there's, you know, there's, it's not physical work, but you know, and this was our first time doing this. So we had no roadmap. We had no, um, we had no sense of how to go about it. You just sort of mm -hmm. sit and you, you do it. That's it. There's no, there's no one middle ground. Mm -hmm. Especially with such a tight deadline. Like, I can't even imagine. And then it came up right when I, I covered the Harvey Weinstein trial, gavel to gavel. So wow, the manuscript nice. was due right before the trial started. So it was like jumping off this like intense, intense schedule and then starting this trial where I was out the door every morning at 5.30 a.m. <laughs> to stand in line to get a seat in the courtroom. And then I wasn't home to like, seven o'clock at night and that went on for a few months yeah. so it was it was just a very intense year and I think that as horrible as this pandemic has been I think the one small um upside is that we have had a lot more time at home and kind of a mm -hmm. quieter pace which we appreciated yeah. um so yeah and I think it helped obviously that we had um so yeah it was it was hard I mean we we went through the book um, after writing it, maybe at least three times together, word by word. So you can imagine two writers sitting side by side, haggling over words. So that yeah. we might have like a 15 minute argument about an adjective, whether to remove it or whether to leave it. So that was definitely trying. There, there are a lot of challenges to, to co-authoring co a book. Oh, wow. wow. His, his joke was we nearly became a crime scene. <laughs> We could have written a book about you. We would do your exactly. <laughs> I think you could sell that one too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Luckily it didn't it didn't come to that. No. No. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, yeah. something that I'm really curious is about about is since you guys have covered so many stories and you specifically um, writing about crime, what made you want to write a book about this story specifically? Like what inspired you to to write this book? Like this story, what was yeah. so like gripping? You were like, it has to be this one. It has to be told, yeah. I think for both of us, what really resonated with us was the, how great the tragedy was for the children. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what, how, how this one, this one murder had just damaged so many lives. And, you know, it was just the, the, the children were the, bore just, the I mean, every, every sort of premature death has a, has a far reaching impact, obviously, but 
when you when you take the time to write about you know one particular crime, you get a sense of how you know it sort of reverberates across generations, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's since it directly involved the kids, so so directly, uh, you know, so directly. It's, it had an impact. Um, and you had a lot of different elements here. I mean, it was a, it's in New York City. You had a woman who worked on Wall Street. You had... Um, I mean, he was a very, in his own right, a very accomplished guy, went to Columbia University, really, really smart guy, which was part of the reason I think he was able to manipulate the police a little bit. He had a good story. Mm-hmm. He told a good story and he was persuasive. Yeah. And yet there's just, there were just a lot of different elements to a twist and turns that you sort of want in a plot to enable, you know, in order to make it appealing to both a publisher and a, uh, hopefully a, a, an audience. Um, but, and it was a 10 year sort of, um, 10 year journey that, that these people had in, from the, from her death to, to his sentencing. And, um, it was just very unusual. It's unique. I mean, there are plenty of crimes every day, especially in New York City, but this one had so many different elements. And I, and I think that the religious element too, which we, which we went into in detail in the book, how sort of religious considerations can play into an investigation. Um, and so it was just, I think it was unique. That was the main attraction. And definitely really, I think, resonated with us. Like the, the And, and I, I, sh- I want to also just give her family credit because they, um, the I don't think that Rod would have ever been held accountable for what he did if her family didn't so aggressively keep going back at the DA's office, at law enforcement and demand justice. Um, I don't think it would have ever uh, gone to trial, really. So I think that what they did was really quite incredible to really uh, obtain justice for, for, for right, their Which is something that I feel like, especially because, you know, on our podcast, we're trying to do unsolved crimes, murders, disappearances. And something that I've noticed just in this short time is when families really push the police to get stuff done, it has mm-hmm. so much more, it like really puts pressure on mm-hmm. and makes them get it together. Where they're yeah. like, wow, we need to solve this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And because it happened in a in a big sort of market, big media market in New York, um, yeah. you know, that certainly has an impact on not just you know the NYPD, but the DA's office and you know every every level of official. Uh, if there if it's a public case and if you have the family in the headlines, um, pushing and that that definitely you know has an impact here and everywhere else. I would assume. Yeah. And just to go back a little bit, because I'm not sure that you might not be aware of this, um, but one of the things that was so tragic is Rod killed his wife and left her there for his daughter to find, knowing that his daughter would be the one to find her. Um, So to me, like for a father to do something like that and put his children in that position, that for us was so profoundly disturbing. I think oh a big part of it. And it came up in, in the trial a lot. And it just was like, wow, how could you stage this in that way to cause maximum um, grief and trauma, exactly trauma to your child? Just yeah. awful. I guess that, that kind of segues into my next question, which was going to be, what's your favorite chapter of the book? <laughs> hmm. I would say, you know, probably the, the verdict, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just the tension, you know, I, I used to cover... Uh, federal court some years ago and obviously Rebecca still 
still covers it. And there's really nothing like the the moment where uh, the courthouse sort of gets note uh, mm -hmm. that there is a verdict. You know, everyone rushes into the courtroom. All the reporters get their their laptops ready. You know, the the families are rushed back into the courtroom. And there's always an element of doubt, even if it's sort of a, a very clear case that there's there's always a sliver of. Uh, and this wasn't this was a circumstantial case. Uh, and because it was a circumstantial case, I think a lot of people thought that a lot of people, a lot of really like experienced attorneys and judges who were there thought this was going to be a hung jury because it was so circumstantial and because the evidence had been so contaminated by the police um, bungling of the crime scene and stuff. So it wasn't like people, everybody was just confident that they were going to get that there. So I think that was part of it, right? That tension. Yeah. And I, and I think you have to, it's critical for any true crime book or any, or a podcast or whatever, whatever the format you have to sort of, um, you have to convey that element of the crime effectively. You know, that's sort of mm -hmm. the, that's the climax and you have to take your time with it. So, you know, and really convey the atmosphere in the room and, you know, the aftermath and so forth. So I yeah. think that was probably, at least for me. And it was fun to, I mean, that was my favorite part to write too, was the trial. Yeah. I mean, it were a lot of elements like the prosecutor and the defense attorney had so much personality. You just had a lot of uh, really interesting personalities and it really played out like the theater of the courtroom. It was like a drama. I am very excited, personally. I know. <laughs> I'm I really excited. <laughs> I'm wondering, like, if someone is listening and they want to purchase your book, pre-order, mm -hmm. pre-order, like um, mm -hmm. plug away. Where can they get it? Okay, great. It's it's available on Amazon.com. Uh, it's available at Barnes and Noble. It's available. Goodreads, it's available um, Macmillan or St. Martin's Press. Um, am I leaving? And then uh, I think Powell's Bookstore as well. I, I mean, fortunately, it's it's a it's a decent sized publisher. It's a big publisher. So anywhere you buy books, it'll yeah, it's there. Um, yeah, and hopefully, a couple of local will... bookstores in Brooklyn have it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so it's 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 out there, and we hope. And um, there's an audio book. So if you want to listen while you, it's also on Audible and the person who reads it on Audible is quite an incredible narrator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gabby, Gabby Zachman, I believe. Yeah, she's really good. Did you, did you guys read um, Gone in the Dark? I think it was called. Oh, I'll be Gone in the Dark. I'll be Gone in the Dark. She did the narration of that book. Oh, yeah, yeah, she did the narration. Oh. I listened to it on Audible and I loved that book. And part of the reason I think that book like really stuck with me was her narration was so good. Wow. I'm going to have to get oh, on that. Gosh, that's, yeah, that's big time. Like that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's pretty so awesome. Cool. We're very excited. We're just crossing our fingers and hoping people buy it and that they like it. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think the last question we have for both of you, which we are trying to ask, like you guys are the first guests on the podcast. Mm -hmm. We have a couple other people that we're talking to for like later on, like in a, in a couple months. But okay. the question we're wanting to ask everybody is the reason why we do our podcast is we talk about the things that keep us up at night. So mm -hmm. for each of you, like what's a story or what's something that keeps you up at night? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I think this this particular story, one of the reasons we wrote it, uh, to, uh, you know, once, one of the reasons we tackled it was because it it had that disturbing element to it that. Um, 
was really sort of unsettling. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I know that's an easy, yeah. I know that's an easy yeah. answer. I mean, the but. fact that he remained free to continue to injure his children, to plot other crimes against other people for 10 years yeah. when he had killed his wife and he still like had this incredible influence on these kids. Um, up until he was arrested, to, that kept us up at night. That that to us, the system has so seriously failed these children yeah. that should have been protected by it. I mean, to, to give maybe a little more of a general answer for you, I think in anything that involves kids, and that's probably influenced by, you know, we, we have two of our own. And I think once, once that enters the, um, once that becomes an element you know, because there, there's innocence in sort of the general sense. There's the, the, you know, adult innocence. And then there's real innocence, which is, you know, what, what, kids, um, what kids have. So I think any, any story, any crime that you hear of, just even in passing where it has that factor, that's, you know, that's, that has a yeah. separate level a of impact. It's just a different form of evil. Like on right. a whole, completely whole different, different level. Yeah. That's yeah. Children are the hardest for sure. Like stories. And I, I don't think we've covered, we've only covered like a couple of stories at this point with kids involved because it mm -hmm. is, it's really hard to like to mm -hmm. stomach, but yeah. When is your official launch date for the book? April 6th. So you can order it now and it'll be at your doorstep April 6th. So if your listeners want to check out what people have written about the book and what they thought of it, Goodreads is a good, a good place to check that out. There's like 43 reviews there already. So that's. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I'm excited. Oh, I, know, so I know for me, yeah. I'm very excited. I will definitely, <laughs> I'll be leaving a review on Goodreads on <laughs> April 8th. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, oh, great. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much to Rebecca and Salim for joining us and talking about y'all's book. Um, it was really just exciting to sit down and talk to them. Uh, it was a great uh, insight into how something like a true crime book is made. But yeah, um, like I was saying earlier in the episode, I'm, I am a huge reader, but I'm very busy um, just working and doing stuff around the house. So I am going to make sure to order that audiobook. I'm very, very excited about it. Same, same. <laughs> um, but yeah, you guys heard it um, April 6th and you can actually check tomorrow. our, yeah, tomorrow. And actually you can check our bio on Instagram and there's a link to go pre-order it. Yeah. So I'm going to pre-order the audiobook now, but thank you guys listening to this super long episode. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed it and always remember it's never, never a mannequin. mannequin. Bye, Bye. guys. <laughs>